Megan for reading. Michaela, thank you for leading us and singing today. Christ, more accurately, that we might humbly learn Christ more accurately. I think every father feels it is his duty to correct their children when they are learning anything. It doesn't matter if you're hammering a nail, if you're mowing the yard, or if you're especially playing a sport or driving. When I played basketball all through junior high and high school, my father came to nearly every game. And my father would tell me over and over and over how good of a, of a job I did, how proud he was of me. And from time to time, he would also take the opportunity to let me know what I could do better. So I didn't matter if I scored 25 points, had six assists, and we won the game. On the way home, I would hear, proud of you, good job, it was an amazing pass, a good team game today, good leadership. If you would have tucked your elbow just a little bit on your free throws, you might have been eight or nine out of ten instead of just six out of ten from the line tonight. Can you imagine how I responded to such things? Far, be- far before I was much more sanctified than I am today. Not really excited. My dad could have said a, a hundred kind, encouraging things, but when he said one correction, that's all I remembered. I didn't like it. I didn't want to be corrected. I just wanted to be praised. Well, apparently this is in the DNA. I found myself recently after one of our children's sporting events sitting at the table after a game, reviewing video from the game. (laughs) Look at this amazing pass you made. Look at this amazing touchdown that you made. Let me just show you this play. If you would have just juked this direction instead of this direction when you ran this, then maybe you could... How might you have responded? How might you have felt? How do you respond in general to correction? and instruction. Do you love it? Do you know that even if it might feel painful, that it's good for you? How do you respond if and when someone might love you enough to pull you aside and say, let's think about the way of God or the way of Christ or scriptures more accurately? How do you think about that? Are you glad for those things? Or does it offend you only? And you rebel, and you just think in your mind words that we're not allowed to say at our home. Just shut up. Just don't do that. Well, we're going to see in Apollos today an example of a challenge every church is going to face. The challenge to refute false doctrine. The challenge to refute. That's your first word, refute. This is one of the things Apollos does that is so chief in this passage, going back to the beginning of chapter 18, refute the teaching which opposes Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So refute. The next one is to be humble. Be humble. The last point that we're going to see here is learn Christ more accurately. Every generation of the church, every generation of the church is going to be faced with challenges from without, from within, doctrinally, namely, what does the Bible say? Who is Christ? What is the gospel? And every generation is going to face the challenge to refute false teaching 
to be humble and to learn Christ more accurately. And Apollos gives us an example of how to do that well and what fruit that might bear. Let's first see that Apollos comes to refute false teaching. This, this is the end of the chapter 18, Matthew, or sorry, Acts chapter 18, verse 28. He, Apollos, what he came to do in the end, refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's think, of, first of all, where, where did Apollos go? If you look at the beginning of the section, he went into the region of Achaia. We know because of his... Uh, the record of Apollos' journeys in 1 Corinthians, that he didn't just go to the general region of Achaia, he went to the capital of Achaia, which is Corinth, which is where Paul had just been in this chapter. And what does he come to do? When he comes into Corinth, where Paul had just left, what does he do? He comes to refute the Jews in public. You can look back at the beginning of the chapter, or toward the beginning of the chapter, and see that the Jews had launched an attack on Paul and his teaching. This is part of how they wanted to get Paul run out of town. Paul is teaching that Jesus is the Christ, and the Jews are trying to teach that's blasphemy. He's a man. This is impossible. They put him forward in a Roman tribunal to try to get Paul kicked out. Their efforts failed, however. Well, this is one of the challenges that the church is going to face in every generation being able to maintain a witness that Jesus is the Christ and to do that from the Scriptures. This is what Apollos does. I'm showing you in the Scriptures that this man, Jesus, as the apostles have witnessed him, he is the Christ that the Scriptures are talking about. We, church, must know the whole Word of God. Church, it is not sufficient for us to know John 3.16 and have that be our favorite verse forever and we know nothing else. Paulos refutes the Jews in public showing them that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. The whole point of the apostles' witness is that this man, Jesus, this man over here, named Jesus from Nazareth, born of Mary and Joseph, born from Bethlehem, everyone knows who he is, that man is the one. That's their testimony. Look, for example, in passages like John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. John 20, 30 to 31. I did not get a page number. John is somewhere in the last third. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And here I am flipping for John next to Psalms. John chapter 20. If you're in your house Bibles, that's going to put you around page 900-something. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, you, like you don't own one, you're welcome to take that one. It's a gift from us to you, and you can follow along there. Or you can take it to give someone else. If you want to take that Bible and just give it away, uh, we'd be more than happy to have to buy new Bibles. John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, John says exactly why he's written the entire book of John. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Uh, this is not a record of everything Jesus did. They're not written in this book. 
But these, the ones that I've written down, this is written, my testimony is written to you so that you may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ. I'll say it again, you finish it. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Son of God and by believing in his name, you might have eternal life. Well, friends, this is how the whole Bible is put together. The Old Testament, over and over and over and over, there's one coming, there's one coming, there's one coming. New Testament, this man is him, he's the one. The one is here. Let me just encourage you, one of the ways we, as a church in this generation, must faithfully pass on the gospel to the next generation is being able to take the scriptures and show as a church in our home to our children and our children's ministry to one another in discipleship with new converts that Jesus is the one the Old Testament was talking about over and over and over. That Jesus is the seed who came from the woman in Genesis 3. That Jesus is the lamb sacrificed like the son was sacrificed in Genesis, or almost sacrificed in Genesis 22. That Jesus is the true king in the line of David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That Jesus is the suffering servant who takes away our iniquity in Isaiah 53. That Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he is the Lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world, John said. The Lamb from Exodus 12 and the Passover. That his blood, which he took into heaven, is the true blood for sacrifice that the blood on the Day of Atonement represented every year on the day of what we now know as Yom Kippur, the day which was recently so grossly interrupted. Jesus is now the Mosaic prophet, prophesied. He is the Moses prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he is the great high priest, not just a priest in the line of Aaron, not just a priest by the fact that he was you know, born a descendant from Aaron, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews says, an eternal priest, higher than the order of Melchizedek. Jews had manna on the ground. Jesus says in John 6, I am the manna from heaven. Romans 5 says Jesus is the second Adam. He's the second Adam in a new creation. He is the very Son of God, Emmanuel, with us, the prophesied Son of the Virgin from Isaiah 9. All of the providence in Jesus' life proves true that between his birth in Bethlehem, the, the rhythms of his life mimicking the journeys of Israel through the desert and across the Jordan in Matthew 3 and 4, the, the miracles prove his divine nature. The curtain tearing in two reveals the temple and heaven is now open. This is why, for example, over and over, Matthew is recording to fulfill the Scriptures. Jesus did this to fulfill the Scriptures. This happens to fulfill the Scriptures. Let me just say to you here, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you're just wondering, what is this all about? Someone dragged you here, you just walked in, you decided to try church today? I'm so glad that you're here. Of all the places in the world you could be today, I'm glad that you're here. If that's you, let me just summarize the entire point of the whole Bible for you. The message of the whole Bible is that God made a holy people. We sinned against him, all of us. You and I, we've all sinned against him. But God sent his son, Jesus, to die for us on the cross, raised from the dead. And whoever believes in him will be saved. And here's how we know that Jesus is the one. 
Because the message of the Bible through the entire Old Testament is giving prediction, 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 prediction. This is what he's going to look like. This is what's going to happen in his life. These are the events. This is what he's going to come do. And then day after day after day after day, Jesus from Nazareth does all those things. He is the one. That's the message of the Bible. That there's a Savior who died in your place for your sins. Believe in Him and you will be saved. And the whole Bible has been looking for Him. And the New Testament is saying He's the one. Look at His miracles. Look at His life. He raised from the dead. The Scriptures are true. And He's the one. So put your faith in Him. In Jesus Himself. And Christians, I fear sometimes that if the modern Christian were to come upon an Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 55 about a servant who's taken away the sins of his people, we might not know what Isaiah 53 was talking about. Apollos shows up and is able to sufficiently refute. The word there literally means overwhelm the Jews by showing that Jesus is the Christ according to Scripture. This is not just a tool for explaining the gospel. It is the good news. Christ died. He was raised, excuse me, according to Scripture. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures. With the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus, God has been saying, Jesus is coming in the Scriptures when he came to die for our sins, when he came to raise from the dead, he did what God said he was going to do in the Scriptures. This is a challenge from one generation to the next. You look at this moment in Acts chapter 18. Paul has brought the gospel to Corinth, but now Paul is gone. And a non-apostle has come back to help the church refute false teaching. Here we are today, so many thousand years later, no apostle around. If you're curious about what I mean by that, just come talk to me after the service. But there are no apostles here. There are no one authorized as Paul was, as those first 12 were in Acts. What we have is the Word, and we have the continued learning and training and correction to know the Scriptures point to Jesus Christ, and we refute those who don't believe who detract. Essentially, Apollos is giving an example of showing Jesus Christ using the Bible, all of it, from the garden to the garden. Well, friends, this is our great assignment. When we are told that Jesus is not the Christ, that He's not the one, we show from the Scriptures that He is the Christ. That's a tall task. If you've read your Old Testament any time recently, you might just be thinking, oh, well, I can't do this. There's no way. There's just too, there's just way too much. Well, how can we do this? We can continue to humbly learn Christ more accurately. Humbly learn Christ more accurately. The only way we can continue as a church to show that Jesus is the Christ according to the Scriptures, as Apollos did, and as every generation must do, is humbly learn Christ more accurately. That's going to take humility first. 
We're going to refute. This doesn't mean that we're going to be proud, we're going to be arrogant, know-it-alls. We're going to need humility. Apollos exemplifies the humility needed in every generation, and especially teachers. See how this is a major point, the way Luke organizes the narrative of Apollos. Apollos is the one learning the lesson. He's the one being corrected in this passage. But who is Apollos? I mean, let's just look at Apollos. Go back to Acts chapter 18, verse 24, 26. Apollos is the last person we would think needed correction about Jesus. Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew, who would automatically have more knowledge of the Scriptures than any Gentile, a Jew named Apollos, what's a Greek name, a native of Alexandria. A native of Alexandria. Is that, is that important? He came to Ephesus. Look at verse 24. Look at his resume. He was an eloquent man. An eloquent man. He was competent in the Scriptures. Competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. I mean, he was, he was strong in his person. He spoke and taught accurately. Listen to this, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus. This is someone we might think needs no help learning anything about Christ. And if you are Apollos, you might think you don't need to learn anything else about Christ. Well, just think about everything he said about him. He's a Jew, but his name is Apollos, perhaps named after the, the god Apollo. But he was also from Alexandria. Do you know anything about Alexandria? Well, just watch that historical documentary, National Treasure. Just make sure you're listening. <laughs> the Library of Alexandria, does that sound familiar? It's the, central of, the center of culture and education in the Greek world. This is where the smartest people of the smart people went and where they were from. When Luke describes Apollos as an eloquent man, it means that he was educated, not just that he could talk, but that he was educated, culturally esteemed. And this eventually became a stumbling block for the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, the Greeks, they loved Apollos. They loved him. They, some of them bragged about being baptized him by him. We see in chapter 1. Paul said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, his letter back to them some years later, Greeks seek wisdom. Jews look for signs, but Greeks are looking for wisdom. Well, that's Apollos. Paul says in Alexandria, and he's an eloquent man. So Paul says in chapter 1, verse 12, that we've got Christians running around saying, some of them are saying, I'm with Paul. Some of them are saying, I'm with Cephas. We've got other Christians saying, I'm following Apollos. Apollos is eloquent. He's educated. He's competent with the Scriptures. And some even allowed that to divide the church. Well, Luke includes a moment in Apollos' growth where Apollos himself is corrected. Look at that, chapter 18, verse 26. He was speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos. Apollos more accurately. Let me just ask you a quick question. 
Are you really aware in your own heart and your own mind that you have room to grow in the knowledge of the way of God and in, in the knowledge of Christ more accurately? Or have you let yourself begin to think, I kind of got it figured out? I mean, even Apollos comes to learn the way more accurately. There are at least four levels or points of humility that we see in Apollos that I think are good examples for us if we are going to grow in scriptures to refute false teaching. The first one is just the humility to learn anything from anyone. I mean, just the humility to learn anything from anyone. Just being someone who learns anything might be a step forward in maturity and humility for some of us. If we're going to be competent in the Scriptures to refute those who reject Jesus as the Christ, we're going to have to learn. We're going to have to be students. How are you feeling about being corrected? Let me just encourage you. Here's a very practical way. It's going to take a lot of courage. It's going to take a lot of desire for God's glory, a lot of desire to know the Scriptures well, a lot of desire to grow in humility. Get two or three people close to you. Known you for a while. Go to them and ask them, do you think I'm easy to correct? I know by the silence some of you are just saying, I'm not doing that. Just do it. Ask people closest to you. Husbands, wives, ask your spouses. Gently, humbly, patiently, really listen. Do you think I'm easy to correct? Not just from you, but from anyone. Am I the kind of person who likes learning and being corrected at all? And see what they say. And if they say yes, don't believe them. Just grow in that anyway. Scripture is replete with examples of the great divide between those who are foolish and refuse to listen to anyone and the wise who love to receive counsel everywhere they can get it. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fearing God, that's how you get down the knowledge road. It begins with fear. It doesn't begin with knowledge. It begins with fear. But here's the opposite of that. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They hate it. Fools hate when they teach and they're educated and they stand in front of everyone and they know things and someone pulls them aside to say, actually, what about this? They hate it. They despise it. And they don't like it at all. So the first level of humility is that Apollos is learning anything of anyone. The second level is that humility of an Alexandrian learning anything. This is not a freshman going to philosophy 101. This is Apollos, the educated, the eloquent. He is someone who already knows a thing or two. Have you read any books? Did you go to college? Maybe, maybe you are so educated because you have watched YouTube videos. So you know a thing or two. But even the great Apollos, despite his eloquence his fervency, his boldness, and his competence, he comes to learn something in this passage. 
So the humility to learn anything from anyone, the humility of even this Alexandrian learning something from anyone, and then thirdly, we have the humility of the Alexandrian learning from tent makers. Perhaps this is the most humiliating aspect of Apollos. Apollos is not learning from fellow Alexandrian peers. No, he's learning from Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers. Remember, we met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth before the very beginning of Acts. Who are they? Well, we just know that they're tent makers. That's, that's Paul's connection to them. They had the same trade. They got to know one another. They didn't study in Alexandria. They weren't eloquent. They don't seem to have that air about them. They seem to be in a different sphere of communities in the world. But this is like an Oxford-trained philosopher coming to learn the way of Christ more accurately from a West Texas oil rig worker. Nothing against oil rig workers. I, I love them, and they actually make really good money. For so I, that's an honorable job. I just don't think a lot of them are sitting around reading Aristotle at night. Maybe they are, I don't know. But you see the picture. This is not someone who would expect to be correcting this person. And yet the truth of Jesus Christ, the way of God, is chief for the tent makers and for the Alexandrian. The humility of the Alexandrian learning from even tent makers. One of the ways I've seen this that has just been so influential in my life, years ago our elders went to Washington, D.C. to a weekender at a church, which means, uh, I don't know why they call it weekender, it's Thursday to Monday. And we just watched this church in Washington, D.C., for a few days. We go to their membership class. We listen to their preaching. We go to some of their staff meetings. And we just we watch all the things that they're doing and just kind of learn. Might we like to you know, learn from those ourselves and take some of those things up. And the, the preacher there is a well-known preacher all over the U.S. Really, I would say all over the world in many countries. He's written many books. And on Sunday night, one of the very last things of the day, that pastor gets his staff together, his elders and includes his interns. Interns. How do you define intern? I don't know. They're not preaching. They're not the pastor. They're certainly not the level of Alexandrian. And the pastor has everyone go around, everyone in the circle go around the room. And now in front of us, you know, several hundred pastors visiting, watching. And let everyone in the circle say something positive and something constructive about his sermon that morning. That would include his other staff members who have been trained in seminary, who are professional preachers now. And that would include those elders who matured for years, and that would include even the interns who are basically still wearing preaching diapers, right? Like they're not giving any responsibility in the church yet. But the pastor said, you, listen to my sermon. You, give encouragement. You, see if you have any correction or any insight to something else you might say. As you might guess, those interns were fairly trepid <laughs> to engage in that. But it was a wonderful example of the humility. The last person in the world you might expect to say, tell me what you think about my sermon today. This is one of the most learned men on earth, listening to correction from those who are small. That's one of the reasons I love Simeon Trust workshops. We have one next week here in Austin. We try to do at least one a year, if not more, preaching workshops 
And the whole situation of those workshops is, as a pastor, even if you're seasoned or if this is your first year preaching, you do some work on a worksheet, you prepare a sermon passage, basically, and you bring it to a small group, and you let other pastors say, yeah, I'm not seeing that. I don't know. What about this? How did you even get to this conclusion? I don't see it in the text. Can you show me? And we let one another look at our work so that we can get more accurate in the way of God, more accurate with Christ, more accurate with the Scriptures. I remember a few years ago, it was my first chance to be leading a small group, my own small group of you know, 8 to 12 other pastors. And I'm supposed to be the leader of the small group. So I'm supposed to be one of the ones who's just maybe a little bit more experienced than the other, than the other guys. I'm, I'm leading our discussion to get better. I go to what's called the pre-workshop, where we kind of go get some answers, we get a little practice, we're one step ahead of our small group. I present my work in the pre-workshop as a leader. I'm a group leader now. I've been elevated to Alexandrian level. And I turned in my worksheet, and we went around, and everyone was fairly kind, everyone was very helpful. And the senior pastor at this church just stopped, and he said, there's an Old Testament passage in your New Testament book in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do you know what that passage is about in front of a group about 15 of my closest friends and peers. And I said, I do not. And he said, well, your bright and cheery message might change tone if you go back and read number 16. And I did, and it did. And it was very kind, it was very gracious of him, but very resolved to say, you're not interpreting it correctly. Go back and try again. And so I did. And I do, I just do every week. I just try and try again every week. I don't know, we should all be like. This is what Apollos is showing us an example of. Eager for correction, welcoming correction, even from those we might put in category around us as tent makers. This is not wise to do in, in the beginning, begin with anyway. But this is the disposition of hum hum humility, no matter how esteemed you get to be, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how much you know about Christ, you continue to learn the way of Christ more accurately. And the fourth dimension, the fourth level of humility is that this growth takes time. I just think it's helpful to mention this growth takes time. There are times when you see people grow quickly. But on the whole, I think we underestimate the pace of Christian maturing, assuming that we're all kind of reborn mature. Consider all that Apollos knew and then consider that which he did not know. Consider Apollos' ministry where he was. He comes in one and a half years after Paul had been in court for one and a half years, and he left the eloquent, instructed, and bold Apollos comes to preach there. And it is that Apollos who Paul says, I planted, and Apollos came after me in Corinth, and then Apollos watered the Corinthians. Paul esteems Apollos highly. But by the time Paul writes to the Corinthians, after he left Apollos, there are already years of ministry, and yet the church still needs a lot of help, a lot of help understanding the Scriptures, a lot of help growing as Christians. When Apollo showed up, they were still baptizing the living on behalf of the dead. When Apollo showed up, it sounds like they were still, some of them not believing that there was such a thing as a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. And so Paul has to write back to correct those things with his apostolic authority in 1 Corinthians. 
We do not expect Christians to be glorified as soon as they begin to be sanctified. We should not do that. Paulus is a wonderful example. As glorified as he might have been, he was still being sanctified in his intelligence and his understanding of the gospel. These churches in Acts 16 through 20, they get revisits for growth. And then they get letters years later about their immaturity and about growing. Apollos' growth and the growth of the churches is a reminder that humble growth, learning from one another, takes time. It takes time. And is this the understanding of humility that marks your life? If we were to scroll through your social media account, is this what your social media account would look like, both in private message and publicly? Is this the attitude in your workplace? When you get a review at the end of the year, is it that you're humble, that you're eager to learn, that you admit that you don't know everything? More importantly, is this your attitude in the church? There's somewhere, is there someone that you think, well, I could never learn from them? How do you feel about being pulled aside, having something explained from Scripture? Christian, it's our joy and it's our purpose to continue to learn and learn and learn and learn, to continue to grow in learning the ways of God and in learning Christ in the Scriptures more accurately. Apollos is not just repenting from false teaching, it's being added to what he's teaching. He's preaching Christ faithfully, but he's also humbly learning Christ more accurately. You don't have to consider yourself a false teacher to say, I need to grow in learning Christ more. You might be a good teacher. You might be an excellent teacher. You might be the most trained person in the room. You can still grow in learning Christ more. We just encourage you to submit yourself to the fellowship of correction through discipleship. Without this, without this, we will tend to have a lot of baby Christians. Not only are they immature in that they're not like Christ, but we will be an immature church that is not able to refute simple opposition to the faith with the word, much less Roman tribunals. Perhaps your great challenge in refuting the opposition that you experience in the church or in the world to Christ, the Jesus being the Christ and to the truthfulness of the gospel, is not learning the culture's ideals more. Not growing in your understanding of Hinduism, not growing in your understanding of Judaism, for that matter, as an, as an ism, or the philosophy of the world, but learning Scripture about Christ. And we're not going to do that unless we're going to be humble, that we can, that we should learn from any who might help us learn the way of God and the Word and Scripture, what it has to say about Christ more accurately. Well, this brings us to what our goal really is to learn Christ more accurately. Apollos knew about the baptism of John, the same problem they had in the next city in Ephesians, in Ephesus, chapter 19, Acts 19. They knew about the baptism of John, but they didn't know about the baptism of Christ. They didn't know about being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I think about this, and I think there are sure a lot of good things to say about Apollos. Why then is there such a blunder as only knowing about the baptism of John? Not understanding Jesus has now instructed his disciples to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me just ask you, what about Christ and his plans and purposes in his church might you not know? 
Where do your beliefs about baptism come from? Apollos had to learn. What about your understanding of preaching and its place in the church? What about the relationship between the church and the state? You probably have a lot of ideals about them, but could you learn the way more accurately? What about gender and marriage? Can you have a, a biblical conversation about gender and marriage in today's world? What about Christianity and psychology? Right, we, we could go on and on the ways that we could continue to learn Christ from the Scriptures, and it applies to so many things in the world. One of my favorite political quotes, and I don't pretend to have, have that many that I can even remember, comes from then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. In 2002, he was answering questions about the evidence or the lack thereof regarding those weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Rumsfeld said, I love his quote, As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things that we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And every journalist's eyes were spinning. <laughs> How do I write this down? What? Thanks, Sophocles. Like, who, who are you? But it's actually really true what he's saying. There's a lot of unknown unknowns. There's a lot of things that you don't even know you don't know. I don't know. I don't know a lot of science. My math is... Well, I went to Mary Harden Baylor. I did math there, but still, I don't know what level I would be at today. There's a lot of things I know I don't know, but friends, there, aren't, there are a lot of things that we don't even know we don't know. Isn't that true in the gospel? Isn't that true in Christ? We continue to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. We have much to learn about Christ, about discipleship, about Christ's return, about heaven, about everything that is in between when God said, let there be light, in Genesis 1, and the very end of this world as we know it, in Revelation 22, when there will be no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord our God will be our light. Well, the way that we grow in this is growing in Christ more accurately. Colossians chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And this is what Paul says about Christ. In whom, in Him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden, they're tucked in Him. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. Many unknowns, unknowns there are in Christ for us to enjoy discovering that we might understand Christ, His church, be like Him, and know Him according to the Scriptures more accurately. Make learning Christ your rhythm of discipleship. Learning Christ is not a school you go to four years in Louisville. It is a lifelong discipleship following Jesus Christ. 
learning everything that he has commanded. That's the Great Commission to us. Baptize, make disciples in all nations, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That implies you keep on learning. You keep gathering here as a church. You keep going through your life. This is why your life group is so crucial. This is why your one-on-one discipleship on Thursday mornings at 1 o'clock, I don't think anyone's doing that, 9 o'clock, 7 o'clock, whatever your time might be, are so crucial. We're continuing in the position and the disposition of learning more about Christ that we might in turn be like Him and refute any false teaching that might arise in the church, that might arise outside of the church. Man, just one example. Men, if you're not engaged somewhere in discipleship or Bible study, there's two new Bible studies in the same book starting last week, but you can pick up really easily this week. Wednesday night from 7 to 8.30, we're going through 1 Kings on Wednesday night. And the title of that study is The the Tragic Trajectory of Israel and How Christ Restores the Kingdom. It's a study in 1 Kings, but it's a study of Christ and His kingship. Same thing, offered on Fridays from 12 to 1. We're going to do the same books, the same chapters. That's just one way that if you're going, I'm just not learning Christ anywhere. I'm not plugged in anywhere where I'm personally studying the scriptures. First Kings, Wednesday night, 7 to 8.30, men. A refusal, a dismissal, a neglect of finding ways to grow in Christ more accurately, well, doesn't that just fundamentally put us in the category with the fool, who though he has reproved many, many, many times, eventually his neck will be broken because he has refused to take counsel. Let me encourage you to read books about Christ. Here's three books on three different levels for you. Three books on three different levels about Christ that if you're interested would help you grow in learning Christ according to the Scriptures help you navigate the scriptures and also teach you about Christ. Here is level one. This is low level. Anybody who can read can pick up this book and be significantly helped by it. Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert? It's small. It's red. We should have some in the foyer. Anybody can read this book. You might even be able to find it free online. You can take one free from us here. Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert? Greg Gilbert is basically saying a lot of people know a lot of things about Jesus, but who is he really? We've got some things, like Jesus was a Jew. Apparently he died on the cross, and he was a really nice person. Well, who is he? Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert? It's a great way to go from just barely knowing anything about Jesus to understanding who he is as king and as the lamb crucified for us. Level two. Maybe I've read that, but I want to go a little bit more in my meditation, expand my, my reading. Another accessible one, but a little bit, just a little bit level up is a book called Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. And I want to read an introduction, part of the introduction from Michael Reeves' book, Rejoicing in Christ. I think it's helpful to us. It just helps explain why it's connected to Acts 18 and to Apollos. This is a whole book just about Jesus. The book is just about Jesus, Rejoicing in Christ. He says, Once upon a time, a little book like this would have been utterly run-of-the-mill. Among the old Puritans, for example, you can scarcely find a writer who did not write or a preacher who did not preach something called, quote-unquote, the unsearchable riches of Christ, Christ set forth, the glory of Christ, or the like. Yet today, what sells? What puts the smile on the bookseller's face? 
the book that is about the reader. People want to read about themselves. And Michael Reeves is saying, we should not do that. That is not good. We should read about Christ. So he's written a book about Christ. I encourage you to read it. Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. This is, the next one is level three. and It's one of the ones that Reeves just mentioned. It's called Christ Set Forth by Thomas Goodwin. This one is Old Puritan English Language. I would love, 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 love to hear you pick this book up and read it. But I'll just encourage you in this way. If you find it difficult to read, so did the other pastors in our pastors group last week. Uh, some of them said, I didn't read because I started reading and I realized it was this old language and so I only got through, you know, halfway through the first chapter. I'm like, you're a grown man who's been to seminary and still. So I give you fair warning. But this is one of those books from Once Upon a Time. And here is the introduction to Christ set forth by Thomas Goodwin himself in the late 1600s. I've changed some of the language to help us just hear it a little bit more easily. He says, I have long observed many holy and precious souls have clearly and wholly given themselves to Christ and who at their first conversion have made an entire and immediate close connection with Christ alone for justification, who yet in ordinary course and way of their spirits have been too much carried away with the elementary truths of Christ in their own hearts and not after Christ himself too much carried away with the elementary truths of Christ that's in their hearts and not actually after Christ himself. The stream of their more constant thoughts and their deepest intentions run in the channel of reflecting upon and searching the gracious disposition of their own hearts instead of their hearts looking at Christ himself. However, Christ is so near to them if they would only look at Him nakedly through thoughts of pure and single faith. Meaning, look to Christ and Christ alone. But even in the late 1600s, Thomas Goodwin said there's a lot of people just looking at how proud they are of believing in Jesus in their hearts and looking at that rather than actually looking at Christ Himself. This was the 1600s way of saying you came really close to Jesus, but you were still just proud of the verses that you learned in Awana. You're still think, singing Jesus loves me songs that you learned in VBS. You're still quoting John 3.16 as your whole knowledge of Jesus Christ. You're 35. And you have a 12-year-old gospel. Learn Christ more accurately that we might be a generation that can refute anyone even our own doubts our own questions with the truthfulness of Christ in scripture let me encourage you to learn Christ more than anything that you learn more than anything that you learn students here today you're thinking about where am I going to go to college what am I going to do what am I going to study who am I going to be Am I going to get a PhD? Am I going to get a master's? Am I going to go be an electrician? Will I be a doctor? Let me just encourage you, learn it all. Go to school for eight years. Don't go, don't go into debt for it, but go to school for a long time. 
do something incredible, be smart, be intelligent, but just know that you need more than anything because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Him is to grow more in the knowledge of Jesus Christ more accurately. What good is a, a medical doctor who doesn't know Jesus at all? Become a medical doctor, become an electrician, get knowledge. All knowledge is good in that sense. But remember what Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 12 says, My son, be aware of anything beyond these things, beyond obeying God, fearing God, and keeping His commandments. Of making many books, there's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Amen. All the college students said, Amen. Of much study, there is weariness of the flesh. Every book you are read, there are ten million that you'll never read. You'll never even, you, you don't even know that you didn't read them. I mean, this is one of the things I learned in my relationship with Cal. Cal's an intelligent man. He continues to tell me things from books I didn't even know were there. You know, there were things I was supposed to have read. I love it. I think Cal would agree. You can read as all the books you want, but it's not the same as learning Christ. Make that the chief thing, the chief person that you are learning more accurately. And I want to encourage you to pray. Pray. As we are a church learning Christ more accurately, accurately, pray that our church would learn Christ more accurately. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll close soon. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. I want you to read Paul's prayer, and I want you to encourage you to pray like this. What is Paul praying for the church who's already Christians? They're like Apollos. They already know God. They're fervent in spirit. They're strong. They're, they're defending the faith. What does Paul pray for people who are already Christians? You might think the prayer would just be, God, thanks for making us Christians. <laughs> but look at Paul's, I would dare say, romantic and genre sense. His inspired, his passionate prayer for the church to learn Christ more accurately. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, because I've heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What is Paul praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, church Christians, the spirit of wisdom and of the revelation and the knowledge of Him. Oh, that you might know Christ more. That you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. You have the hope, you know the hope, but you don't even know the hope fully yet. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance with the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. Let me just encourage you to pray like that for your life group. Pray like that for your pastors. Pray this for your church that we would come to know Christ more accurately, the way of God more accurately, his power, his wisdom, his riches. When Apollos took what Priscilla and Aquila taught him, he was then commended by the brothers to go into Corinth 
and teach and preach the gospel where he publicly refuted the Jews, publicly overwhelmed them with the knowledge of Jesus being the Christ according to the scriptures. Apollos, even himself, the educated Alexandrian who could learn a thing or two from those tent makers. My hope is that we would not be like high school basketball player Nathan Loudon and got his feelings hurt when his dad tried to correct his free throws. Be like Kobe Bryant. Be like Michael Jordan. Be like Patrick Mahomes. Be like Kirk Cousins. One of the things that marks the greatest athletes is that they continue to try to get better and better and better and better and better and more accurate in their swing, in their throw, in their pass. When they lose, they learn. And when they win, they learn. They're constantly learning. Tiger Woods was asked what keeps him coming back so many years later. He said, the thing about the game that keeps bringing me back is that no matter how good you are, you can always get better. I just find that difficult to believe having watched him play. But this is from a guy who we couldn't believe was so good. When Apollos took what Priscilla and Aquila taught him, he began to refute powerfully the Jews in public. Having been one who was bold, who was fervent in spirit, who was educated in the scriptures, who knew the way of Christ, but who was also instructed to know the way more accurately. Let us be a generation of the church who can refute every false doctrine by humbly, humbly continuing to learn, being hungry to learn. Be hungry for your life group this week. Be hungry for your personal Bible study this week. Be hungry to come to First Kings on Wednesday or Friday. Be hungry to find someone to read the Bible with. Be hungry to humbly continue to learn Christ more accurately. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. In our best moments of humility, we acknowledge we do not know everything. And even the things that we do know of Christ are but a portion of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are all hidden in Him. We pray that you would give us fresh vision of Jesus Christ in all of His glory, seeing that you have made it just like you said, let there be light. You have made the light of your glory shine in the face of Jesus Christ. And to come know Him is to know you and to come know Him is to know all your glory. To come know Him is to grow in the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray that that would be our aim today. That we would leave here eager, hungry, ready to learn Christ more accurately. Would you help us just now think about our week as we pray? What might our week look like? What might our days look like in the coming days? Would I, how might we be very careful about the rhythms of our life to ever be in the way the path of learning Christ more accurately. Thank you, Father, for your word and for Christ who continues 
to help us learn and grow through the ministry of the Word, the apostles, through those who have discipled us, tent makers in our lives, pastors, preachers, teachers. Thank you. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.